Hello, welcome to the Blue Grid podcast. This is your host, Major Ani Fedotova, a psychologist at Los Angeles Air Force Base. What makes us resilient? What is grit? Please join me as I set out to discover how we can become grittier. This podcast features current and former military leaders, mental health experts, elite athletes, veterans, special operators, superior performers, POWs, and others affiliated with the military who have overcome significant adversity. Each guest will discuss the unique methods and practices to help airmen and really all service members or anyone interested to build mental toughness and grit. The views expressed are those of the author or guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the United States Air Force, the Department of Defense, or the United States government. I am here in Los Angeles PA studio with Rob Stella. He is a 24-year Navy SEAL veteran. He has expertise in strategic operational planning and master training specialist. He has done multiple deployments to Middle East, Pacific Rim, Africa, and Afghanistan. He has earned master's in performance psychology and is completing his PhD in industrial organizational psychology, has multiple accomplishments and awards to include, you said, your highest award as a bronze star with Valor. And I am honored to have you here in the PA studio. Thank you so much for coming out. I appreciate you having me here. We love what your mission is here. And as service members, we want to continue to serve and anything we can do to help out the airmen you have and anybody of all different ranks, it's our honor to be here and help out in your goals. Awesome. Rob, you're part of APG, which is Acumen Performance Group. I found you, I was reading a, a magazine, I think it was Veterans Magazine. I was captivated by the article and reached out to you guys and you were very cool. So tell me a little bit about what you do, what your organization does and how you all came together to do what you do. It actually started while on active duty. We, the founding partners, were all working together in a shore duty billet, which in the Navy, you do so much sea duty time, five years deploying. Then you come back and you get a two to three year shore duty billet, which allows you a little time to reset, coach the kids in baseball and whatnot, and actually be a family man for a few years before you head back overseas and start that workup cycle again. And what I was assigned to was called the Seal Swick Scout Team, which was an outreach program to try to build awareness about the Seal community and the Swick community. Those are the special warfare communities within Naval Special Warfare. You can't recruit a Seal; it's a self-select program. So what we did is we started doing outreach to high-level candidates, which Gallup found over a five-year study that, hey, these are the personnel who seem to do best in SEAL training. They were like boxers, lacrosse players, obviously swimmers and water polo players. So we started reaching out to these athletic organizations. And what we do is we'd spend about an hour teaching them a class on mental toughness. And then we'd spend a few hours doing kind of a mental toughness workout where we'd push them to their limits and show them how some of those techniques we talked about can be applied in real time and they can actually succeed. And the teams we started working with started having great success so much that the Olympic Center, which was right down the street from our base, contacted us. And we started working with Olympic teams who started a medal. The female water polo team actually received gold two Olympics in a row, their first gold ever. So there was a lot to this. A lot of NCAA football teams were reaching out to us. And eventually, 
an NFL team contacted us and the Navy had to say no because there's no return on the investment. So mm -hmm. it got the think tank going, hey, mm -hmm. there's something to this. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just you doing this, a group of you doing this. There was a group of us doing this. The same group of individuals that were doing this for the Navy talked to Navy legal and said, hey, is it possible for us to actually set up and do this with this team as civilians? Because they asked if they can just pay for us to come out. And Navy legal said, well, you can't do that with a Navy hat on. You have to incorporate. You have to be on leave. You have to have an outside employment shit. And there's a lot of legalities for you to do it. But yes, you can do it. You have to go through these steps. So what we did was we ended up not working with that team because way too long down the line before we're legally eligible to do it. Sure. But and we started year? the process. Oh, this yeah. was in 2011. We okay. incorporated. And then we spent an entire year just going over what our standard operating procedures would be, how we're going to conduct business, what kind of curriculum we're actually going to develop and put out to our clients. Because the Navy, we were limited to one hour talk and then like a two hour workout. And we wanted to be able to give them much more than just a quick mental toughness talk. So we developed curriculum over the next year, came up with our SOPs, launched, got lucky. We landed a professional baseball team right off the bat, which was unbelievable. We landed an NHL team. And then it was like crickets for a little bit. <laughs> like, oh, we had this false sense of security. From that point on, we've been doing really well, building momentum, but we started to learn a little bit more about business development. And now we're working with multiple NFL teams. We have an NBA team we're working with right now. And we branched out to start working with corporate clients, which is why I really got invested in the industrial organizational PhD program so that I can bridge the gap between our experiences and what is known out there on the PhD side so that we're giving them the best product possible. You started as you were still active duty in the Navy, correct? Right. Part of Navy SEALs. And I guess you can't say once a Navy SEAL is always a Navy SEAL. So you probably that's part of your identity. And, and all of the people on the team were part of the active duty Navy. Yes, we were. There's three of us. Two of them were retiring okay. in 2012. So before we even launched to our first client, two of them were retired. I stayed on active duty somehow for an extra few years. I retired in 2017. So it was kind of an interesting juggling of responsibilities for me being on active duty as a SEAL. I ended up deploying for a year overseas, was trying to work on my master's, trying to run a business and manage a family. So mm -hmm. talk about grit. There was a lot going on mm -hmm. on my plate at the time. And then when I retired, my business partners had set it up so well that when I retired, I was able to transition right into working full time for our company. And we're just improving our product all the time and coming up with new ideas and new services for our clients. Can we just stay on this topic for a little bit? I'm really curious. Sure. So let's talk about curriculum development. You said you had an hour talk to you know anybody who you wanted to talk to, and it was a talk on mental toughness, which then developed into a pretty extensive curriculum right. that you currently teach. Can you tell me how did you come up with curriculum? You know, who was kind of the brain of the operation and what does it actually look like if I wanted to take the class? Well, our initial mental toughness talk that we gave while on active duty was pretty simplistic. It's the techniques that everyone knows about, the self-talk, the visualization, goal setting. It's what they call the big four. And then from there, we started to dig a little bit deeper, especially with me having my master's in performance psychology. Bill, my other partner, has his master's in general psychology. 
And we took a step back and started looking at, hey, there's a little bit more than this. So let's dig in here. Let's find out how to really set our clients up for success and what elements do we want to teach them. And those elements are still within our curriculum, but it starts off with just mapping out your success to ending with becoming unstoppable. And we take them through that progress. And because we like our classes to be 50 minutes long, it was a struggle to actually engage in conversation during our mental performance talk and still meet the timeline. So we've actually cut it in half and we give it in two different parts because the most important part of our courses are the discussions we have with our clientele. Mm -hmm. If I'm working with a basketball team, they have very unique challenges as opposed to a football team or a construction company or some other kind of corporate client. So as soon as somebody engages us in discussion, real learning starts to occur. And it's something that applies to the entire crowd. So that's extremely important for them to really get engaged in these conversations. We don't want to neglect that. So we're going to dive into that, which would take us over our timeline. So now we designed it to where we're going to give about 30 minutes of our materials. And then the rest of that is designed so that we can engage in conversation throughout. We work with very small, new family-run businesses, all the way up to Fortune 500 companies. We've worked with Sony. We've worked with Ford. We've worked with LinkedIn. But we've worked with some smaller organizations as well, and we don't want to scare away those smaller organizations. There's a lot of NCAA teams that are intimidated to reach out to us because they see us working with the Miami Heat and the 49ers. But the reality is, is we work with anyone that desires our services and we give them everything we have. It sounds like what you described, those are individuals or teams, organizations or businesses that are already at the peak of their careers, maybe, or they have known success on some level. So it sounds like you work with already high performing individuals or teams. That's a very true statement. We can work with people that are performing at the highest levels and help them get to that next level. And we've also worked with organizations that had some struggles and we have an outside perspective that will bring them and we can actually aid in implementing new ideas and raising the bar for them as well. So it's a little bit of both, but most athletic organizations will focus on building a culture more than trying to improve specific performance levels of these already elite athletes. Okay. You started out by describing that there are kind of four basic performance-based skills or performance-based concepts. You named visualization, goal setting. There are two other ones. Yep. Visualization, goal setting, self-talk, self -talk. and then arousal control, which okay. is basically breathing. Oh, okay. And now it develops, sounds like more into leadership. Absolutely. We don't call it mental toughness, but most people know what mental toughness is. Mental toughness is actually a small piece of our mental performance package. But what it really comes down to is one word. It's control. That's what mental performance is all about. We'll ask people, hey, what is an emotion? And you get a lot of blank stares. People come up with different ideas, all of them really good, because most people have an idea of what an emotion is. But the easiest way to simplify an emotion is it's a need. If you look back at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, those are very applicable even today. So if you have a need and it's being fulfilled, there's usually a good emotion attached to that. If a need's not being fulfilled, there might be a negative emotion. If we have a need for food and we're getting hungry, people 
have that term where they say, I'm hangry right now. They have an emotional reaction to being hungry. They're not getting food. So they get a little short with people. And that being hangry is they're getting a little angry because they're hungry. They're having an emotional reaction to that need that's not being fulfilled. And when we're performing, everyone's a performer, whether you're a basketball player, whether you're an airman working on a piece of aircraft, whether you're a leader trying to lead personnel, we're performing at all times. And our performance is dictated by how we're able to control our emotions. The decisions that we make are based off our emotions. And it's a lot like taking a shower and that little water valve right there. You have to understand what your optimal level of performance is. So you have to understand where your individual zone is for your optimal performance and identify when you're either too far to the left or the right of that. So it's kind of like taking a shower, man. It's too cold. All right. Turn the valve to add a little bit more heat. If Mm -hmm. it's too hot, turn the valve to take away some of that heat and you get it to where it's just right. Mm -hmm. And that's what mental performance is about is identifying what your specific needs are, where you're going to be in your zone. And then when you start to fall out of that, being able to recognize it right away, a lot of self-awareness comes into play or even with your teammates, understanding when they're kind of falling out of it and then helping them get back in there. Or if you self-identify, okay, I need to reset. I need to implement some of these techniques and get yourself back into a functional zone to where you can function again. That's part of what you do in terms of your assessment, right? So you identify where that client's individual's optimal performance zone is. And then the next step would be you want to stay in that zone as much of the time as possible. And if they're not in that zone, then you want to use the maybe almost surgical tool to bring them back. What are some of those tools that you use? Well, actually, just to clarify this, we don't do this. It's up to each individual. It's like going and doing some strength training. The strength instructor can show you everything to do, but you're going to get out of it what you put into it. So we open their eyes to see what's out there, mm-hmm. but it's up to each individual to understand their own self okay. and then to adapt to the situations that they're under in order to get back to that functional level. I'm curious. I don't know if you can speak in generalities. Can you give examples of how can I identify if I'm in my optimal zone versus not? Like what would be some of the things that you teach your clients? Well, the human stress response is the first indicator typically to where the heart starts racing and people start dilating and you start going through those physiological reactions to stress. If you can identify that, because some people don't identify that right Mm -hmm. away until it almost gets too late. Mm -hmm. If you can identify that, For me, there's certain things that I do, especially while operating overseas in a combat zone, that I use consistently. And the first thing is I prime myself. It's a way to regulate your emotions. We call them emotional regulation. So I had a routine and athletes follow routines. Everybody should follow a routine if they want to perform at their highest level. So before an op, I would go through my routine and be set up for an op every single time. So I'm primed and at the highest level to function and perform. The first thing I would do is thank God for Skype and FaceTime and all that is I'd make peace with the family. So I would not ever let my wife know what's going on, but I would contact her. I'd have my combat pants on, but I just have like a t-shirt on so she couldn't see I was getting ready to go operate. And I would just chat with her and talk with her and give her an excuse why the internet's going to be down because they're going to be doing some maintenance and you probably won't hear from me for a few days because our ops can go anywhere from 36 to 72 hours, who knows how long they end up going sometimes. 
So I didn't want her worrying. Oh, I haven't heard from him. What's going on? I wonder what happened to him. As far as she knew, I was playing with dogs overseas all the time. We'd find, you know, camp dogs and play with them. Hopefully right? she's not going to listen to this podcast. <laughs> right? She's heard enough since I've retired, but I still try to shield her from what's actually occurred overseas because I don't want that at home with me. But from there, I would actually hang up with them, made peace with them. That was good. I'd say a prayer, make peace with God. And then I would just start using a little visualization. I, I like to close my eyes. I'm a nocturnal being, so I love the dark. So I'd be in just my room in the dark and I would just be listening to music with heavy bass. It's typically uh, thunderstruck or disturbed. I'd listen to them sometimes and I would start visualizing the entire operation from start to finish. And as I go through it, I'm just mentally preparing my mind so that once our feet hit the ground, your body follows its focus. Whatever you prepared in your mind is what your body's going to do. Under stress, you're not really in control. You're going to fall back to the training. And that's what I would do is I would go through that process of visualizing, just trying to relax, kind of going back and forth, you know, thinking about everything that can possibly occur, thinking about all the contingencies. Then I'd shut it down, grab my bag, walk out, check in. We'd get around a fire and they would do what we call a send off. The chaplain would say some words of encouragement out of fire and brimstone from the Bible. It was pretty cool. And then we'd do roll call, get on the helos and take off on the op. And from that point on, sounds kind of coarse, but my wife doesn't exist. Nothing exists in my world right now except for this op. And I would just turn everything off and it was just straight focused on the operation. We'd go in and after ops, you get done, you'd be talking to people and they'd tell you stuff you did. You didn't even realize you did because under stress and whatnot, we would actually perform just like we trained. It's amazing what you're capable of doing, but if you didn't properly prepare, it's a crapshoot. Mm -hmm. I really love that you talk about routine. Can I go back to visualization? Sure. You used some type of modality auditory feedback for whatever reason. And it sounds like it was maybe some type of heavy music. Gets a heart rate going. Okay. And why did you need to do that? That got me in that optimal zone I needed. There's certain football players that will take a nap or listen to classical music and that gets them relaxed because that's where they need to be. They need to be on the calmer. So it's that inverted U you've heard about, Mm -hmm. correct? Mm -hmm. So the X and Y are performance and arousal. So too much arousal and you're not going to function well, too little and you're not going to function as well. It's somewhere in that sweet spot up at the top of that curve. So for me to go on a SEAL operation, I wanted to be at the farther right side of that spectrum to be primed and ready to go. If I was a violinist for a concert, I'd probably want to be on the calmer side of that spectrum mm-hmm. to be prepared. I wouldn't want to come running out there slamming the violin around being a maniac, right? So I needed to prime myself to be in the right mindset I mean, we have this mentality of speed and aggression and violence of action. We're going in to do a direct action hit on a target. Calm is contagious, but you couldn't be too calm. You wanted to be primed a little bit. So that music with that heavy bass actually gets that adrenaline flowing and that human stress response used in a good way. It primes the body and gets you ready for action and gets the mind ready for what you're about to do. Okay. When you're in that controlled physiological arousal state, then you go step by step in your mind of what you are about to do. Correct. 
Do you do anything else? What goes through your mind as you're doing visualization? Visualization is a mental rehearsal. That's primarily what it is. And you try to include all the senses you can possibly. I think the SEALs do an excellent job in how we train our personnel so much that we've actually incorporated scent generators. They've gone away from green silhouettes because nobody looks like a green silhouette in the field. And when you're waiting for a green silhouette to show up, you're going to end up getting shot up by something that actually looks much different. So that's a training scar. And I think we've done a good job throughout the years, especially after 9-11 with the lessons learned from combat operators coming back from overseas. Hey, let's incorporate this into our training. Let's add the stress in our training. And we do a good job at doing that. So we incorporate all five senses in all the training, including scents from Afghanistan, if you're going into Afghanistan, or have scent generators that are going to smell like Iraq, so that when you're there, it's familiar territory. Mm -hmm. So when I'm visualizing, I try to visualize anything that's going to happen over there. Dogs getting in the way, people coming up, regular civilians, how we're going to respond to them, just anything that can possibly happen. You can't prepare for everything that you prepare for what you know typically will happen. And then when it does occur, you just respond to it because you have a backup plan and a backup plan to back up that plan. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really like that. I think a lot of the times when we talk about visualization, that part maybe is not articulated very well or it's missing sometimes where you have to go mentally overcoming barriers. Right. So you envision, oh, this could be potential bear. There's a dog or there's whatever that was in your world. You imagine a barrier and then all the ways for you to overcome that. Absolutely. We call it flagging the minefield sometimes. And the majority of our training, I think one of the toughest blocks of training we have in a SEAL platoon workup is called land warfare. And you're out in the middle of the desert for a month over these ankle breaking rocks and just hitting it hard. And the instructor staff is just destroying you. And that training isn't about us assaulting a target and doing what we do best. It's about, hey, when the worst case scenario happens, how are you going to respond? How are you going to survive this? And it's about prioritizing. What's a priority right now? What do we have to do? What's our mission? Is this mission scrapped and then we have to return to base right now? Or are we going to punch through this and continue on with mission? So we train for worst case scenarios so that when we get overseas, deployment should be the easy part. I mean, anything can happen in war. However, the very first time I had ever gotten shot at, it was kind of surprising. It's like, wow, this is not bad at all. You know, I almost feel bad for these guys because we're about to tear them up if this is the best they have. Because we're used to our training cadre of SEALs attacking us and making us feel like we're going to die when we get over there. Man, we can't seem to get anything done right. Every time we do something well, it seems like they come up and they just destroy us in training. And that was done for purpose. It gets us comfortable with being uncomfortable, obviously, which is a big theme to SEAL training from the day you show up in basic underwater demolition SEAL training mm -hmm. through your workups. Mm -hmm. But it really comes to light when you're actually overseas and things start to get crazy and just how reserved, confident, and controlled everybody is and they fall back to their training. So that's why we do train that way and that's why everybody should try to implement that into their preparation phases. Mm -hmm. You had routines back when you deployed, then you have routines currently. What are some of your routines? As far as going in to work with a client, a lot of it is we try to get as much intelligence as we can. If I'm going to work with an NFL team, 
We'll talk to coaches, find out what the heartbeat is there, and then we'll try to reach out to some of the players, try to find out past players. We'll try to get information just so we have some contextual knowledge about what we're going into. And we also try to prepare. We have this need to prepare. I think SEALs do that better than anyone with rehearsals and just figuring it out on what can go wrong, what do they need from us, how do we actually fulfill what they need. And most of it is just on our preparation. And we're good at what we do. We enjoy what we do. And I think the most fun part of our job is finding new experiential training scenarios to throw at our clients to change it up. We have one corporate client we've been working with for going on seven years now, and we do something different every year with them and always trying to raise the bar. Mm -hmm. But that takes a lot of preparation and it's a blast. We love it. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me about your motto, Embrace the Suck, where it came from? Embrace the suck, that is the essence of taking back control. And the military uses it all the time. We use it because I don't think there's a better term you can say that really captures it. An example is in SEAL training, the worst thing that can happen to any student, if they can get out of their bed in the morning, because I think the hardest part of SEAL training was just getting out of my bed and getting the day started, knowing I was going to be wet sandy and miserable all day long and not knowing what the instructors were going to throw at us. And the night before, we knew we had an early morning PT where the sun wasn't going to be up yet. We're going to be right on the beach right there. The waves are crashing. You're freezing cold waiting for the instructors to show up. And we're like, hey, tomorrow morning, let's who you have the instructors. Then let's have the class just go hit the surf, get wet and sandy and show back up in our PT lines standing by. And that morning, I remember <laughs> sitting around, you see the breath coming off and like, hey, sure, you guys want to do this? You know, it's like, <laughs> sounds like a bad idea. But the reality is that they were going to get us wet and sandy eventually anyway. So the instructor showed up. Our guy did the whole hoo-yah of the instructors. And we turned around, hit the surf, got sandy, came back, and the instructors looked dumbfounded. The worst thing that can happen to you in SEAL training is getting wet and sandy. And we did it to ourselves. And we took that sting away. What can you do to us now is basically what we said to the instructors. Mm -hmm. And they were completely stunned. I remember the chief in charge of the phase tries to cover it up. He's like, did it ever occur to you that maybe we wanted you dry today so we can do rope climbs? And the reality is we did so many rope climbs, wet and sandy. Give me a break. He's just trying to make it seem like we didn't just own them. Did he talk like that? Kind of. I don't know. That I'm not going to throw his from. name out because he might be listening to this. I don't want him at my front door. But um but Chief K, we'll call him, he, he was a very calm chief, and he was one of the scariest people in that phase because you didn't know what to expect. We had some awesome instructors who were high intensity, but you knew what to expect. When, when this chief showed up, I was like, mm, I don't know, guys. Looks like you screwed up pretty bad. And you just didn't know when it was going to slam. You know, you just heard him talking. He's calm. He's eerily creepy about it. And he's like, mm, I don't know. These guys, they're not happy with you today. Mm -hmm. I don't know what to tell you guys. And that was worse than him coming in, acting irate because we completely screwed up or somebody cheated on something. At least we know it's we're here. We're in it mm -hmm. with him. You didn't know. Uh, it's about mm -hmm. to happen now. Mm -hmm. Wait, what's going on? So mm -hmm. he was good about that. And I appreciated that. And I've used that to my advantage throughout my career when I was a SEAL instructor as well. Why did you decide to join? Tell me a little bit about your own background. 
I actually was not interested in joining the military. It was kind of rude, I think, to recruiters my senior year in high school. I didn't fare well in high school. I ended up going to junior college, was going to eventually transfer to a university after two years. And that first year in college, I was floundering, just not motivated, not interested. So I decided I want to take a break. A bunch of my friends had joined the military and it seemed like they were doing well. So I thought I'd give that a go because if I'm going to take a break from college, I didn't want to get stuck in this. I'm working for my dad. And then 10 years later, oh, here I am still working for my dad. I guess I'm going to just work at this place for the rest of my life. So I figured the most honorable thing to do would be to join the military, grow up a little bit, reset so I can come back a little bit fresher, ready to start doing some college again. And there's a GI Bill, so they're going to pay for college as well. And once I got in, I went after the SEAL program. And when I eventually got in the SEAL program, which was no easy task, I loved it. And I stuck around for 24 years in the Navy. I was planning on doing 20, but somebody 24 years later, I was still in. <laughs> Why? What attracted you in that program? When I was in high school, I played, well, ever since I was you know, a little kid in the peewees, I played football and I loved football. Not so much just because I love playing the game, but I love the camaraderie. I love the teammates. I love that atmosphere. And when I graduated high school, I lost that piece of my life. And there was a void there. And what I saw from the SEAL community, one of my best friends, his brother was trying out for the SEAL program at the time. So I started to learn about the SEAL program and got to see what kind of culture they were. And it was very similar to that. If you look at a football team, there's a very close knit family in a football team. And what they were doing was a lot of fun. I mean, they were diving, they were free falling, shooting things up. Not a lot of information was known back then about the SEALs like it is today. But as I started to look into it, it sounded awesome in what they did. And I've always been driven to do something bigger and better than myself. And that answered that call right there to be part of something like the SEAL community wasn't a dream at the time, but it drove me. And I'm driven by a calling. If you break it down, it's something I'm actually studying nowadays to see why people do what they do and see how their drive flows them in different directions. And I understand why I went into the SEAL program because I'm categorized as my drive orientation being calling. So it makes sense. That's why guys like me, to uh, how this guy make it to SEAL training? Look at him. He's not an elite athlete. He's a skinny little dork. And were you? To, well, I wasn't like a skinny twig, but I would not tell people I was trying out for the SEAL program because I want them looking at me go, are you going to make it through? Mm -hmm. You know, somebody like, an Olympic swimmer says, hey, I'm going to try out for SEAL training. Yeah, well, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. You'd probably do well. But mm -hmm. somebody like me, I didn't want to hear negative input from people. Mm -hmm. So I never even told people I was even trying for the SEAL program because mm -hmm. I didn't want any kind of negative thought process coming into my mind. And that really helped. Trying to get in the program, though, I think I did so well also because it was a struggle. I was in the regular Navy at first and a detailer that owns me for the rate I was in, which I was a machinist mate in the Navy, it's hard to fill that billet because nobody wants to work in an engine room on a ship. It's a horrible job. That's where the boilers are and the main engines. It's like 120 degrees. It's hot. And it's like being a factory worker mm -hmm. and not why I joined the Navy. So I was trying to get in the SEAL program and this detailer did not want to release me. So I fought so much that 
My mom actually met the president while he was campaigning in 1996. And she and my sister were waiting on the corner where they found out he made a unscheduled stop because she owned a Dairy Queen Brazier in Milwaukee, right by Marquette University. And a cop came in and was like, hey, Bill Clinton was supposed to go eat here, but he stopped at this fried chicken place down the street from here. Why don't you go check it out? So she'd never seen a president in real life. So she ran over there, didn't want to get near the paparazzi. So she stood on a corner with like two other people. And Bill, instead of going right towards the paparazzi, he walked straight over to her. And God bless my mom, because she was so nervous about me becoming a SEAL, but she put her own comfort levels aside. Mm -hmm. And when he came up and shook her hand, she didn't even call Mr. President. She goes, Bill, listen. And she started to rat on all the issues I had with trying to get (laughs) into the SEAL program and how I'm qualified, but they keep denying my orders because they're trying to say that the Manning is too low, but I had proof that Manning was high enough. And two weeks later, I had a letter from the Office of the Secretary of the Navy apologizing for my issues and congratulations. What a Here's story. Buds. Yeah. So, <laughs> what a story. Yeah, it was, it was nuts. So the president actually got me into SEAL training. Apparently. Right? <laughs> That's awesome. That's a great story. <laughs> yeah, they weren't too excited about me inviting him to graduation, which I had to do because if somebody helps me get into SEAL training. And did like, he come? No. Okay. And if he did, the base would have been, you know, if a yeah, yeah. VIP shows up, there's a lot of cleaning and a lot of extra work. And my name would have been associated with that. I would <laughs> but uh, he did not show up. When you went through... Still training through BUDS, or maybe at some point later, did you get any classes on mental toughness? Because you said, no. you know, you taught them at some point. So I'm curious, where did you learn it and how did you learn it? I learned it when I started teaching it for the SEAL SWIC Scout team. And this is why psychology kind of fell in my lap and why I fell in love with it. Because I had to teach these mental toughness techniques to people. So I had to learn about it first before I started teaching it. And as I started to talk about it, I started to bridge the gap between stuff I had done. And guys from my generation either tapped into these, luckily, without knowing you were tapping into them, or you didn't, and you went away. And you started to see, oh, wait, I actually used this while I was in SEAL training, and this is how I used it. Meaning that guys tapped into it kind of intuitively, somehow they understood what skills to use. Right. And they were successful compared to those maybe who didn't. Absolutely. I did not realize I was using certain mental toughness skills during my time in training. My football coach used to talk about mental toughness and he would talk about stories of people like the guy that got stuck between a boulder and cut his arm off, those types of stories. And I had an understanding that mental toughness existed and there was mental toughness out there, but I really didn't know much about the mental toughness skills. Fortunately, I tapped into a bunch. So I think a lot of that came just from my upbringing, parents, and just experiences I had. I was able to take that with me into SEAL training. A lot of people don't tap into some of these skills and they end up floundering and end up quitting. So that's exactly why the SEAL SWIC Scout team was started is we want to help these students once they do show up. There's a program now in SEAL training to where in kind of like the in-doc phase before they even get to first phase where they'll teach them some of these so they can apply them during their training. So they are getting an education on it nowadays. So Mm -hmm. there's a little more awareness, but for us, it was just luck of the draw. That's so interesting. You said that probably from your parents, from your upbringing, somewhere you picked up those skills. Right. Can you try to distill what those moments were for you? 
I would have to say, uh, always been a goofball. Most of the guys in the SEAL community, you'll see our goofballs. I think levity was one of the biggest tools we used, having a good time, making something funny. Mm-hmm. And we enjoyed embracing the suck. That's what our class did. We had the largest buds class in history, and it wasn't because we had an easy time going through SEAL training. We had fun. We pushed the envelope. We challenged the instructors like we did when we hit the surf ourselves. There was one point where we made it through Hell Week with an absurd amount of students. And second phase is where you get into the dive phase. They actually didn't have enough dive rigs for our class. So they took us out the week before second phase. We were still in first phase. And they took us out to try to do that surf conditioning where they get you cold and wet and trying to get people to quit. And we've already been through Hell Week. So this is kind of a joke, but the instructors are trying to do whatever they can to get some more guys to quit. And our OIC ends up taking off his UDT shorts. So they're almost butt naked in the surf and everybody did it. And we're we're waving them above our head, just yelling at the instructors. And it's the first time I've ever seen it where the instructors just kind of turn around and walked off the beach. It's like, oh, did we just beat them? It's like, (laughs) are you kidding me? Put our shorts back on and head back in. But we had this mentality that you can't hurt us, which is the mentality you want to have. The instructors had a respect for us. They still were hard on us, but they respected where our heads were and how trainable we were and that we're willing to push the limits. And I think that's something that I brought into SEAL training with me is I was willing to push limits and, you know, having fun in the worst of conditions. But for me, it was like an actor finally getting to Hollywood. I had done some research and was really excited about getting into SEAL training and getting through it and getting onto a SEAL team. And while you're there, it's kind of like, dude, I'm blessed to be here. And I just enjoyed being there. If my body wouldn't break down, I'd be stationed in there. I mean, we're getting paid to work out and hang out with awesome dudes from all different backgrounds, some amazing personnel. There's Olympic athletes, collegiate athletes. We had a guy that was a rocket scientist that was actually worked for NASA at one point. I mean, just all different types of people, but mm-hmm. it's a really good time, but you get out of it what you put into it. And we always had a blast. Is it your opinion that you can teach mental toughness? Absolutely. Mental toughness is a skill. It's not an ability. It, it's something that can be developed. And that is why APG first came to life. We were able to succeed. And none of us, if you look at us, we pointed out when we get in front of our clients, I'm like, look at us. We're all different shapes and sizes. We're nothing that looks elite. If I walked into a bar, nobody would know I was a Navy SEAL. But we were able to accomplish so much more than what the average person does. And it's not because we're superior human beings. We just have a different attitude and the way we approach things. And a lot of it comes from our ability to just be comfortable with being uncomfortable. And it is something that can be taught. And these lessons work in real time, which is why we do experiential training. It's nice to talk about it, but I'll tell somebody that this will happen to them under pressure. And they don't believe you until you throw them down in a set of push-ups that are an easy set of push-ups. But when they all have to do it together in unison with the protocol we give them, all of a sudden it becomes difficult. And whoa, hey, we got to redo these again because of this. And we're dependent on everybody to get through this. And all of a sudden, 10 push-ups becomes a pretty difficult task. And while I'm tasking them, I'm giving them simple orders. But because they're uncomfortable and they're not used to it, they're struggling. Mm-hmm. It's interesting what you do when you're actually under pressure. Mm-hmm. Mental toughness isn't about performing well when things are going right. It's about performing well 
under the worst of situations. Mm-hmm. Can we try to experiment and can you teach me a skill? One of the skills maybe that's easy to teach over a microphone that you teach to your clients. Most of the techniques we teach to clients are something that you kind of have to be here to really appreciate it. Otherwise, they just hear sound effects in the background. Okay. I guess one that I talk to, but I don't really teach in an experiential mode. We'll work with our clients and while they're actually doing some kind of physical or mental challenge, we'll have a seal or one of our cadre assigned to their bow crew so that they can have that more intimate transfer of knowledge. And our guys will task them while they're in the middle of doing something difficult. Hey, are are you using any of your techniques? Why don't you try this? And we'll have them in real time try these techniques. For me, one of the things I learned was so important was that breath technique. And the reality is, is I saw this work in actual combat. I was a point man for two platoons. And as a point man, I was kind of hanging it out there because the way our platoon was set up, I was quite a distance in front of the guys just in case we had to turn around, go back the other way. And we didn't want the whole platoon getting caught up in that (laughs) confusion. So if something did happen, I'm kind of on my own. I'd have to do something called collapsing the apex where we'd open up on whoever's shooting at us. And I would try to collapse back towards my guys while they're moving up towards me. And out of nowhere, we're getting lit up and you're waiting for a lull because I feel like I'm in the middle of the open right here and it's pretty flat terrain. I mean, you'll learn how to hide behind a rock if you have to. (laughs) There's somehow you can really suck in pretty small and (laughs) hide behind things when need be. And as soon as there was a lull, I was able to get up and get a little bit more cover off to the side And we have night vision and our lasers to come out and we can't see them, but obviously we can see them and my laser is just going all over the place. So obviously I'm not shooting well because my body's just amped up and just total stress reactions occurring. So I just took a step back, just took a few breaths, came out and just those few breaths were enough to calm me down to a functional level because what they call the rule of fours is actually breathing in nice and deep diaphragmic breathing, breathing out for about four seconds and doing that for four minutes. Mm -hmm. Now in a combat situation, you don't have four minutes. And I've learned even with driving in the car with my kids who are getting crazy, just taking a deep breath, just to calm down. Mm -hmm. It does a lot for bringing that heart rate down. And I saw that happen with the laser. It was kind of like amazing. Well, Hey, this works. You know, it's kind of one of those (laughs) surreal moments that, hey, look at that. And this actually works. There's something to this. Yeah, so simple. And kind of goes back to your point about control. It's all about being able to stay calm and control in the situations that are potentially very chaotic. One thing that we can always control is our breath that nobody can see and requires very little effort. We can control our heart rate and heart rate that's come down can switch our sympathetic system back to parasympathetic, which is kind of more relaxation response. Absolutely. And can be magical in moments of stress. Yeah. And, you know, I mentioned the kids in the car. I found this to be the most interesting aspect. And I think this is important for airmen and service members to understand. As a SEAL, I trained for war for over 20 years. And wartime situations, while they seem to the outside like that, it's just the pinnacle of scary. It's not because that's what we've been training for and we react. Back home, though, I wasn't training for some of the things my kids would say or things that my wife would throw at me. 
So where my kids might require a level two, since you've been training for war forever and you're up at a level six at almost all times, if I go up a level or two, that's way too much for what the kids need at that time. And understanding that and being self-aware of that, I think is where a lot of service members struggle. And thank God I took psychology classes because I understood this and was able to still meet the kids where they need to be met. And which is where that breath technique really comes in handy because kids say some things that you can't believe came out of a human being's <laughs> mouth. And the arguments they're having, it's like, <laughs> I, I don't even know how to coach this. Uh, just stop making noise all the Just be quiet. You know, it's like, I don't know how to handle this. I, I know how to handle, you know, a multi position attack on us, but I can't handle two, eight and 10 year olds in the back of the van. It's kind of interesting. So being able to utilize this more than just at work, but at home and finding balance. Mm -hmm. uh, I was one of the few SEALs that actually stayed married for over 20 years to the same woman. And I think a lot of that plays into the balance we'd find. I had to understand what she needed from me and she had to understand what I needed from her. And while I was on active duty, I lived a mile and a half away from the base. So I get done with work. In a mile and a half, I haven't been able to turn off my work brain. And when I come walking in the house with everything going on from work, mm -hmm. cluttering my head, and as soon as I open the door, oh my God, you won't believe what Maddie did. And oh my God, Justin just jumped off the you know, top bunk with his backpack on thinking he's parachuting right onto his head. And like, I, I just get bombarded with all these issues she's been having, but she's wanting adult time and she needs a partner in crime there against these kids we just came to an understanding listen sweetheart i'm going to be there for you i know you need me and i know you need some adult time because you've been with these kids all day long or however long i've been on a trip i need 10 minutes so just give me 10 minutes to turn off my work brain to unwind to know i'm home and to actually be functional so i can give you what you need from me mm -hmm. And just by doing that, you know, there was times when I'd still come home and that happened. I'm like, hey, and as soon as I bring it up, she's like, oh, yeah, I remember. OK, I'm gonna give you your mm -hmm. space, but huh, I'll be waiting here. Ten minute timers, on, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. but you need to have that balance. You need to have that communication and that understanding. And it's huge, especially for service members that sometimes we forget that our spouses don't really understand what we're in the middle of. But that doesn't make them less valuable. So you got to build that ability to communicate and that allows you to self-care. What an amazing awareness on your part and what an amazing ability to communicate your needs, hear her needs and then negotiate. It's not all flawless. I'm sure. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> sure. There have been some mistakes made and some things said. What do you do when you feel out of control or out of balance? That happens a lot. Resetting is probably the best tool. And it's something I try to teach all our clients. When things start going crazy, reset, stop, take a step back, take a breath, figure out the priorities. I learned this as a SEAL chief. Probably the hardest lessons I learned the first time I was ever trying to run a scenario in training before we deployed. And it's something that's applicable in all aspects of my life. And when I get overwhelmed, which we try to do to each other in training because we want to see, hey, it's great. You know how to operate there. But when the worst case scenario starts to happen, how do you function? And that's what they need to know before they send a platoon overseas with somebody in charge. And that's just as important in the home life and everywhere else, too. So 
as soon as I start to feel overwhelmed, I go into that reset mode, take a step back. I try to get back in that optimal zone I was talking about. And there's different techniques. That's self-talk. A lot of people talk to that. I think that's very subjective because I know myself, my positive self-talk might sound negative sometimes. My partner, Mark, does the same thing. He always makes kind of like, hey, way to go, Mark. But that gives him that little relax that he accepted it. He understands it. Okay. It calms him down. Sounds negative to somebody from the outside, but mm -hmm. for him, that's what he needs. Mm -hmm. For me, mine's almost like a joke. It's like, I could have done without that. You know, okay. and it's just, okay. you know, sometimes my self talk doesn't sound positive, but it's really in the eyes of the beholder. So if that works, find out what works for you mm -hmm. and then utilize that. If it's straight up negative, like, ah, oh, you're the worst a hole in the world and you're going to fail miserably. No, that's not, <laughs> that shouldn't work for anybody. You don't want to throw any kind of negative thoughts like that. A little something said, once it's out loud, it becomes a, a living, breathing thing. Yeah. And I think it's more powerful if it is said out loud. So sometimes I'll even make a statement like that. I've tried to focus on that a little bit more. I'm still struggling with those, but it is an automatic thing to where I try to say something out loud, recognize the situation I'm in, take a step back, and then just start prioritizing. All right, what's important right now? Where do I want to go? Mm -hmm. Is that still possible with the route I was taking? No? All right, let's shift to this. Mm -hmm. And that really helps calm me and allows me to put things in perspective. Can I clarify when you say, you repeat it a few times, I take a step back. What does it actually mean to take a step back? That means I'll stop. Okay. I'll stop. If I keep moving forward, disaster is just going to compile. So I'll take a step back, meaning, all right. Physically we'll stop. Physically stop. Mm -hmm. What's going on here? If you're in an argument with somebody, mm -hmm. your spouse, your friend, whatever. It's not going to get better <laughs> with time. Sometimes it's like, I'll stop. I'm going to go to my corner. You go to your corner. Okay. Let's just put everything in perspective, get back control, mm -hmm. and don't make an emotional decision. If I notice I am going to make an emotional decision, I try to recognize that and stop it. Mm -hmm. There's no place for emotional decisions. It's not based off of what's best. You're very good at self-monitoring. So you kind of constantly do a lot of self-monitoring. Oh, maybe that's an emotional decision. Oh, maybe I need to reset. Maybe I need to communicate this need. Absolutely. Do you think that skill can be taught, the self-monitoring skill? Yes. And there's a few pieces with this, and it starts with self-awareness, brutal self-awareness. Mm -hmm. We have to be brutally honest with ourselves and be willing to look at some ugliness we have and then addressing that and once you understand yourself it really helps you maximize your potential because you get a good snapshot of yourself you're able to weigh your strengths you're able to figure out ways to minimize your weaknesses it definitely allows you to build better relations with people because you being self-aware goes a long way with understanding those around you as well you want to be aware of others you want to have that situational awareness and it really opens the doors to you maximizing your potential once you become self-aware. Because from that awareness, now you can adapt. And that's the key. Mm -hmm. That's the difference between something complicated and something complex. There is no controls in something complicated. But something complex, it looks like, oh, there's no way to fix this. No, there are things we can do. You just have to adapt. And being able to adapt allows us overseas to accomplish what SEALs are known for accomplishing. Mm -hmm. And it starts back in buds, whether you realize you were learning these skills or not. 
there's means behind the madness to everything throughout training. And it starts to make sense as you progress through your career. Oh, that's why they did this to us. Okay. This makes sense now. Mm-hmm. Do you remember last time you felt out of control? I'm trying to think. Actually, that's a good question. Not really. I, I know I can think back to where things felt like they were starting to get out of control. But since I've retired from the Navy, I mean, what's the worst thing that can happen now? Right? <laughs> I don't have to answer those people anymore. But the Navy taught me so many great lessons. And I don't think since I've retired, I have felt out of control at any time. There's worries when you're a small business owner. Obviously, like anybody else, you want to develop your business. You want to get more clients. And this is why. I have partners who have been teammates. My partner, Mark, we were in BUDS together. We've known each other for over 20 years. Mm -hmm. And it's having a support group. And I have a great support group at work, and I have an amazing support group at my house. My family's awesome. My wife is my biggest supporter. She actually gets more angry than me when stuff happens to me. And she's always just kind of been my rock. And she's the one that took care of the family while I was gone. Didn't ask what I was doing, respected those areas. And when I was deployed, she kept the kids so busy, they didn't even realize dad was gone. I mean, my daughter thought I was in Mexico. It was awesome. You know, and (laughs) she did a great job at that. So these support groups are critical. There's a lot of anxiety in today's world. A lot of our airmen, a lot of our service members are struggling with unwarranted anxieties. And most of us, especially service members, are afraid to reach out and ask for help because it almost seems like a sign of weakness. And what I thought was an amazing reality was a buddy of mine that was going to the NICO course in Washington. And this is where they spend a month working with our operators who are possibly struggling with PTSD or there's issues coming up. And they're going to really tap in, find out how many TBIs you've had and, and try to get you back operational again. And when he showed up there, he sees all these other teammates like, oh, you're screwed up too. Oh, you're, oh, hey, we're all in the same boat. And you realize, hey, man, you're not alone here. Mm-hmm. And it went away from being taboo to where, hey, the door's open. So come on and ask me a question or identify it. A lot of times people still will not reach out. But if you recognize something, be that person that gets up there and starts asking the questions because you need a support system. I think in the SEAL teams, those plates are synonymous with that. I ask clients all the time, why, you know, I tell them all about the plates. They stop seven, six, two rounds. You can take this many. And why do you think we wear those? And a lot of them are like, uh, to save your life. Like, no, it's not to save my life. It's to keep me in the fight so I can keep fighting for the teammates to my left and my right. It's to save their lives, not mine. And that's the mentality of a support system. And that's really the mentality service members should have moving forward and understand they have unlimited resources these days. It's no longer taboo. So utilize them. As I was listening to you, I was thinking about a lot of the previous interviews that I've done. There are clear themes that emerge throughout these interviews. And a lot of the guests talk about very similar things like build a support system, use a self-talk, have your teammates reach out and seek mental health when you need to, have routines, those kinds of things. Instead of thinking of support system, it's there to serve you, although by default, it ends up being there to serve you. 
it's really you there to support others. Absolutely. I like that. It's being part of something bigger than you. Yeah. And, you know, if the team benefits, you're doing it right. Yeah. If just you're benefiting, you might want to rethink on what your motivations are. You know, yeah. it's, it's got to be about the team first. We have it on the back of our shirts when we're working. It says team, big letters, then team made a little bit smaller than self, really small. Mm-hmm. And that was taught to us from day one of SEAL training. We'll be the candidate who's in the hot showers trying to relax at the end of the day when everyone is out there cleaning up our inflatable boats and taking care of all the team gear. The instructors might not see it, but we do. And we're going to make sure you don't make it through training you know, mm-hmm. on our side because that's not what we want. You don't have our back overseas. Mm-hmm. And it's a lesson that we learned early in training that I think is a powerful lesson to understand. Mm-hmm. It's got to be about the team first, then your teammates, and then yourself. Mm-hmm. For those airmen or service members who are struggling with difficult times, what would you recommend? As we said, have people you can count on and call. Everyone has somebody they can call. If they don't, there's resources out there, chaplains out there. Communication is critical. I have numerous friends, some from other services, that I have them text me whenever they need to talk or get something off their chest. And I respond as soon as I get that text. And you have to be there for them because this environment we're on, it's not like nothing's going on overseas. People witness a lot of uh, atrocities. I think for SEALs, our PTSD does not come from being worried about being in combat. We train for that. I can understand why National Guardsmen freak out because they're not trained to the level we are. They're not equipped to the level we are. It's overwhelming for them when they get out there. We plan for the worst. For us, it's witnessing something like these poor little kids that were trying to play in their neighborhood right there that stepped in an IED and blew their legs damn near off. And they're going to come over to the little out base we have there because we're the only ones with any kind of medical training. And honestly, I mean, I don't let my daughter walk to school. It's a few blocks away. I'm worried about her getting kidnapped or something. This is the type of environment where it's a different culture and they know there's IDs in the roads, but they're letting their kids run around. And to see a kid your son's age get completely blown up like that, that plays games on your head and you can't help but to kind of, what if that was Dylan? Mm-hmm. You know, and those are the things that haunt people in the night. So I think a lot of people think it's just combat related. A lot of it's just things we've seen. And to have people out there that you can call and be like, hey, man, I'm struggling with this. And just somebody to listen and maybe share their stories and know you're not alone. Yeah. Anything else that I'm not asking you today? Whenever I talk to high school seniors, the biggest thing I like them to understand, whatever you have going on in your world, the simple lesson I like people to understand is you're going to be just fine. You know, for college bound students leaving high school who are going to be on their own for the first time and they're getting all these pressures from their parents and, hey, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? You know, half the parents are asking that because they're still looking for ideas. The reality, it doesn't matter. If you looked at my bio, you know, oh, he, he was a SEAL chief, retired with valor. He has a bronze star almost have my PhD, have a master's, and it just looks like the perfect picture. But I was a complete turd in high school. I lived a block away from the high school and still would get to the first period class late. 
because I would be sleeping up until the last moment. And my grades were horrific. I took two correspondence classes because they didn't have online back then just to graduate with my senior class on time, which pretty sure we cheated in the guidance counselor's office just to get that done. I mean, I think I was in the lower 10% of my class. And on paper, it looks like I was bound to be a failure with the rest of my life. And what it turns out was I just didn't see the relevance behind a lot of classes I was in. I wasn't driven. I loved playing football. And the only time I did well in class is when my grades had to be high enough to play football. And joining the military really set me up for success because you can't be a turd and make it in the military. You learn some stuff in boot camp, but it was really in SEAL training and being around all these amazing personnel that were depending on me to do well that really developed me into the person I am today and where I failed so many classes when I was younger. I just finished a class and I was calling my buddy Mark all the time complaining about this professor. I've got a few classes left and this guy was not teaching the curriculum. He was treating it like it was an advanced research class. And I would be frustrated and I'm trying to get a 95 because that's an A. And I graduated my master's with distinction. I'm trying to finish this PhD program with distinction. And this guy is almost going to knock me down to an A minus. My wife's like, seriously, an A minus? You're going to have a problem with that? But for us, if it's worth doing, it's worth overdoing. And mediocrity is for cowards. So we go at things pretty hard. And at least I do. And I try to do the best I possibly can. But that's not the way I was. So people that are struggling, you're going to be just fine. Your, your life is not set. It's up to your attitude and the decisions you make. And if you don't like the way things are, there are changes you can make. And mine was a progression from when I was that lapsadaisical kind of completely lazy student in high school to the person I am today. It's like night and day. So. These mental toughness techniques that I was able to tap into really helped me. My approach to doing things helped me. The attitude is really what changed. Mm -hmm. Once I learned to put on the right attitude and embrace the suck, there was no ceiling to what you can accomplish. So for anybody struggling right now, just know this. You're going to be just fine. Get some help. Get some support. And do something that sucks every day. Challenge yourself daily so that when you're hit with a challenge, it's familiar territory. Hey, I've been in this before. I've been in worse. And that's really the essence of why we put our guys through hell week. We make it so miserable so that when they're downrange and, hey, hey, we're extended. We're not going to get any sleep tonight. Okay. Been here before. Easy day. Awesome. This is Rob Steller with Acumen Performance Group. Thank you so much. Beth, thank you for having me. This is your host, Major Ani Fedotova. Thank you for listening to the Blue Grid Podcast. Hopefully you enjoyed this interview. My goal is to air the narratives of courage, vulnerability, and crit to normalize the airmen's own challenges and help them internalize the message of hope and recovery. This discussion is not a formal medical advice and any techniques, treatment, diagnosis, or alternative actions discussed are not a recommended treatment or course of action for all listeners and are not a replacement for professional medical assistance. You are encouraged to seek medical or psychological help for your unique issue. If you have feedback, please find me in the global. My email is anavfedotova.mil at mail.mil. It's a-n-n-a dot v 
fedotov.mail.com.